This is an ABC podcast. G'day there and welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer and it's always great to have your company. Now today on the show, what else? With just days before the US presidential election, US politics. Now for more than a century, from the downfall of Richard Nixon to the downfall of Soviet communism, no Republican won the presidency without his help or ran the White House without his advice. He played hardball, but he believed in compromise and deal-making and, and this is important, in treating one's adversary with respect. Who is he? James A. Baker III. The problem is that the current dynamics so pull away from the kind of bipartisanship, the civility, the, the sense of, of shared purpose that it's it's hard to see how they come back to the fore at the moment. Stay with us for Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, co-authors of a new book on the man who ran Washington. But first, the Trump record in the Middle East. Well, Donald Trump's foreign policy is all too often met with derision, or simply showmanship, isn't it? The critics mock his diplomacy, and they pan the choice of his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, as a Middle East envoy. However, just days away from the US presidential election, Trump has had a few certifiable victories to put in his closing advertising pitch to the American people. I'm, of course, referring to the peace deals between Israel and Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates and Sudan. These have been brokered by the Trump administration. Well, to tell us more about the significance of these Abraham Accords, they're named for the profit of Jews, Christians and Muslims alike, let's turn to Greg Sheridan. He's foreign editor of The Australian. Greg, welcome back to the show. Great to be with you, Tom. Greg, your assessment of Trump foreign policy generally? Well, Tom, I think... um The media has done generally around the world a very poor job on analysing Trump because they themselves have become so polarised. They're either all against Trump or or a small minority of them are all for Trump. Whereas I think Trump has had some wins and some losses. Stylistically, he's been very unorthodox and at times, I think, counterproductive. But you can look back and say that What Trump has been about has been creating leverage for the United States in key relationships. He's put tariffs on China, and that gives him something to negotiate with China. Uh, He's put sanctions on Iran. That gives him something that Iran wants to get rid of. And in, in every key relationship, he's got leverage for the United States. Now, I think he's done a lot of specific things that have actually been quite good. You can certainly criticise the way he talks about alliances, but if you look at his actions rather than his words, quite a lot of the things he's done have been very successful, especially in Asia and the Middle East. He's increased the US military budget more than any other president, and uh, American allies in Asia are very happy about that. The allies in Asia who have been most critical of China and most inclined to stand up against China, namely Japan, India, Vietnam, Singapore and Australia, a couple of them are not formal allies, of course, Uh, they've had a very good relationship with Trump overall. Bilaterally, a lot of his relationships have been very successful, India and Australia. Uh, His administration has uh, built the quads, the quadrilateral security dialogue. He has recognised the nature of the Chinese threat to the international system and to American interests better than any other president, and he's moved the debate along. At the same time, there's been a lot of chaos in his administration 
The way he talks is terrible. But I think he's had some real wins, and I think he's done very well in the Middle East. Okay, well, talking about the Middle East, uh, you have argued in the Australian newspaper they amount to a major step forward in the peace there. Why are these Arab states altering their relations with Israel? Is it because of the mutual fear of Iran, or is it because the US has leaned on them mightily? Well, it's both of those, I think, Tom, plus some other factors as well. But you've just got to pause for a second and, and marvel at the size of Trump's achievement here. And um, to even utter these words probably, you know, gets you sort of condemned by all international relations. Banished from polite yeah. society. Yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah. All, all, all orthodox theology of international relations would, would excommunicate you for saying it. But, you know, Israel has five peace treaties with Arab nations. Three of them have come under Donald Trump. He has said... We back Israel 100%. He's moved the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, tremendous symbolic sign of his commitment to Israel. But he has said, we also back the security of the Gulf Arab states and we are opposed to Iran and we're going to put sanctions on it. We don't think the nuclear deal went far enough. Now, the Gulf Arab states all agree with Trump about Iran but also they themselves, to some extent, have lost interest in the Palestinian cause. They're certainly not going to allow uh, the Palestinian view of Israel to be a roadblock. Now, they see Israel as a very good security partner, and they are encouraged by the US administration to make peace with Israel. If you just tuned in, you're on ABC's Radio National with me, Tom Switzer. My guest is Greg Sheridan, foreign editor of The Australian. Now, Greg, you've been one of Australia's leading defenders of US Middle East policy for decades. Uh, Trump came to power on an America first strategy. His goal appears to be to reduce significantly America's military role in the Middle East. We just talked about this grand anti-Iranian coalition that can contain Tehran once the Americans are gone. Given that America is now energy independent, more or less, isn't this retrenchment from the Middle East, if Trump is re-elected, isn't that a good thing? Well, uh, I, I think it's a mixed grill, Tom. I, I think it is probably a good thing. The, the other thing to notice about Trump is that, on the whole, he has implemented a lot of his foreign policy promises. If you put Trump's uh, record on the Middle East altogether, uh, it's pretty impressive. The US defeated ISIS. And he's decided that the Iranian uh, nuclear deal is a very bad deal. I agree with him about that because it recognises the legitimacy of Iran's nuclear industry, allows uh, enrichment of uranium, a whole lot of other things, and then allows, in a very short period of time, uh, arms sales to Iran. So Trump has said that's completely unacceptable. He wants a new and much better deal. And in the meantime, he's applying sanctions to Iran. Well, that has significantly diminished Iran's ability to cause mayhem in the region. Yeah, but that brings me to the point about what happens if Joe Biden is elected next week. All the polls, uh, many of the pundits, uh, the betting markets point to a Democratic victory next week. If a Biden administration comes to power, Greg, doesn't that increase the chances of everything you've just been saying being wound back? I mean, wouldn't Biden, for example, um, revert to the Obama nuclear deal with Iran? Well, he that's what he says he'll do, although... Um, Part of the problem, so the final point from the past, though, is that Trump has not engaged in any new military adventures, whereas even Obama engaged in the regime change in Libya, which had absolutely disastrous consequences. Now, Biden 
it, it's very unclear what kind of administration Biden will uh, provide. His advisors at the moment seem to be dominated by retreads from the second Obama administration, Susan Rice and Ben Rhodes. But then his party has moved a long way further left with Anastasio Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders and the influence of their crew. He says he's going to make climate change the centre of all of his foreign policy. I think uh, he may repeat a mistake of Trump's, which is simply to try to undo everything his predecessor has done. Whereas Trump has left Biden, if, assuming Biden does win, Trump has left Biden a lot of leverage. So Trump also, you know, authorised the elimination of the commander of the Iranian Quds Force, uh, Soleimani. And uh, the Iranians, like everyone else, are a bit scared of Trump and they're um, constrained by not knowing what he's going to do, even though he hasn't done any major military intervention. I don't think Biden will want to put more troops back into the Middle East or anything like that. The story of the last 10 or 12 years really has been Americans, well, say, trying to get out of the Middle East and finding it very, very difficult to do so. But Biden would be tremendously mistaken if he didn't try to capitalise on the successes Trump has made. I certainly don't think he's going to try to talk Sudan or Bahrain or, or the United Arab Emirates out of their normalisation with Israel. But will his administration be smart enough to keep it going with other Gulf states? I mean, Trump was saying the other day that he thinks Saudi Arabia can make peace with Israel. Well, that would be an earth shattering. That would be an utter tectonic shift in the Middle East. And um, uh, Biden, if he's smart or if his administration is smart, will keep going down that road. And then, God bless them, they can get all the uh, accolades for for whatever success they want themselves. But if they go back to the old paradigm, the John Kerry paradigm, you've got to somehow rather miraculously solve the Palestinian problem before you can do anything else. Uh, well, then I think it could be much less effective than Trump has been. To be continued, Greg, always great to be with you on Radio National. Thanks so much, Tom. Greg Sheridan, he's foreign editor of the Australian newspaper. You're listening to Between the Lines with Tom Switzer making sense of Australia's place in the world. Well, a few years ago, Robert Gates, he was Defence Secretary in both the Bush Jr. and Obama administrations, he was asked what was the greatest threat to American national security. What do you think his answer was? It wasn't Russia, not China, not Iran, not Sunni jihadists. No, according to Gates, the greatest threat to American national security was, quote, the two square miles that encompass the Capitol building and the White House. Now, this was from the northern winter of 2013-2014. And ever since, that polarisation, that hyper-partisanship, the politicking, the dysfunction, that's just got worse in Washington, hasn't it? However, it was not always this way. What you see today, according to a new book, is the opposite of Washington of the 1980s and the 1990s. This was the Washington of one James Baker the only person to run two White Houses, indeed the only person to serve as Chief of Staff to two Presidents, the only person to run two Cabinet Departments, Treasury and State, and the only person to run five different presidential campaigns. Extraordinary. The book is called The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James A. Baker III, and the authors are Peter Baker and Susan Glasser. They're a husband and wife team. Susan, Peter, welcome to ABC Radio. Thank Thanks you so much us. for having us. 
Now, James Baker has not been a major figure in the corridors of power for nearly three decades, yet you've dedicated seven years to this massive project about his life and times. Peter, why? <laughs> well, one reason is because his story is the story of Washington. You know, he had his hand in almost every major thing that happened in Washington for a generation, from the end of Watergate to the end of the Cold War. There was almost nothing you could see happening in major American politics, and even world politics, that he wasn't a part of. And for four Republican presidents, he was the most important person at their side in many instances. And he was, as you point out, not just that he ran two White Houses and was Secretary of State, but ran five presidential campaigns. It's like a guy like Karl Rove and Henry Kissinger all rolled into one. And more broadly speaking, he also told the story of Washington and how things have changed so much since the days when things could get done to the days when you just quoted Bob Gates saying that the biggest threat was the White House and the Capitol. Yes, indeed. And James Bann, in a, in a Washington Post review, Susan, he says that your portrait of Baker is, among other things, a description of how Washington used to work. These are his words. A different era when bipartisan policies were possible, when disputes were sometimes settled through compromise, and this is important, when political opponents were willing to recognise the humanity and legitimacy of the other side. Susan. Well, that's right. It wasn't quite the zero-sum era in Washington that we're living through right now. And, you know, look, it was a very partisan moment, certainly in the 1980s and 1990s. And, and Jim Baker was a, a hard practitioner of politics. He just devastated his opponents. Ask Michael Dukakis, whose uh, reputation was destroyed in 1988. The difference was after the election was over, Jim Baker was a believer that governing was something fundamentally different than partisan politics. And to do that in Washington successfully at that time, you had to work with the other side, whether that was Democrats on Capitol Hill or Soviets in Moscow. And he had a unique skill at uh, you know, making people walk away from the table, not feeling like they had just been taken to the cleaners. Okay, so he's a creature of the Houston aristocracy. You deal with this in great detail early on, a successful lawyer in Texas. He makes the jump to government and politics in the 70s, late 70s, and then throughout the 80s. Uh, Peter, why was he so good at public service? Well, it's a great question because he didn't have any preparation from it. You know, his family uh, was specifically told not to get into politics when he grew up in Houston, and he didn't really get into it until his 40s. But he clearly had a natural instinct and an intuition for it that a lot of people lack. And part of the intuition is what Susan talked about, which is the idea that you can sit down with other people, figure out what they need in order to get what you need. And that politics was not about just crushing your opponent, that it was also about getting things done. So he had this sort of understanding of how the gears of politics work, the gears of the White House and, and Washington work, and how to negotiate something in which you actually come away from the table with what you need without you know ruining things for the future by destroying your interlocutor. Okay, so Baker plays hardball, but within limits. Susan, tell us about this special codependent relationship with one George H.W. Bush Sr. <laughs> well, codependent is a good term. You know, it, sometimes it, it seems like it's a, a sibling relationship. And as with a lot of sibling relationships, there's rivalry at times, especially if you go into the family business together. Uh, you know, when, when Baker first met George Herbert Walker Bush on the tennis court to the Houston Country Club, uh, you know, actually Bush was kind of the dazzling 
older brother figure. And, and that's how Baker described him to us, dazzling. Uh, Bush had been a World War II hero, the youngest naval aviator. Uh, he came to Houston and broke away from his preppy family in Connecticut. Uh, his father was a senator at that time, but he went out to make his own fortune in Texas. He got elected to a house See, while Baker was still sort of following dutifully the family path into corporate law, hunting on the weekends, playing tennis, uh, and not really his own man yet. And so he really looked up to George Bush uh, and uh, even shared with him the terrible secret of his first wife's fatal cancer diagnosis when he had told no one else, including his wife, uh, which was, you know, really wow. powerful bond. Yeah, I know. Right. Indeed, and indeed. It, then they brought that to public life, though. And, you know, Baker flourished in this unlikely second career. He was the world's most successful mid-career change uh, in his mid-40s in Washington. But there was real frictions at times with Bush uh, when especially in that 1992 campaign that Bush lost. That was a very hard, almost a, a bond breaker. Barbara Bush called him the invisible man. He wasn't there to help his friend. Uh, who then suffers this crushing defeat. But who was there when Bush died a couple of years ago at his bedside, literally rubbing his feet, but Jim Baker? Yeah, yeah. And of course, uh, Baker was uh, Bush Senior's Secretary of State, 89 to 92. These were very tumultuous changes with the end of the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet communist regime, uh, the reunification of Germany, the Gulf War. You deal with this in your book. Uh, Peter, you say Baker articulated no grand plan for the country or the world, but when empires collapse, there's usually brutality, bloodshed. That usually coincides. You think of the British departure from Kenya, Malaya, the Indian subcontinent, uh, the French Empire from Vietnam, Algeria, or the Belgians from Congo. What took place in the case of the Soviet empire's collapse? That was very much the exception. Surely Baker and the Bush team deserve high praise here, Peter. Yeah, look, you know, the, Bush and Baker were not revolutionaries. They weren't the ones who caused the Soviet Union to collapse. Obviously, give Mikhail Gorbachev a lot of the credit for what happens there. But what you have in Baker is somebody who figures out how to harness the forces of history that are happening around him, right? So he takes what's happening and the opportunity that presents itself and helps to, to bring it to a safe landing, right? To, to make sure that the end of the Cold War happens in a relatively peaceful and orderly fashion. It didn't have to be that way. As you point out rightly, history is full of bad uh, examples of empires collapsing. And in this case, it, it happened in a way that not only happened relatively peacefully, that the Eastern European countries were freed without bloodshed, and that the, the new emerging nations of this former empire become friends with their enemies, that is the United States. That's an extraordinary moment. And at least part of that, you can say, was because Baker and Bush handled it in, in such a, a deft way. Yeah, and Susan, you quote Henry Kissinger, now 97, the former National Security Advisor and Secretary of State to Presidents Nixon and Ford. This is Kissinger, this is his quote to you, Baker has a less complicated approach to international order. That's a bit of a cheap <laughs> shot, isn't it? <laughs> well, look, you know, Kissinger is uh, nothing but realistic and he understands uh, at their advanced ages that his only rival, you know, for a place in the Secretary of State record books uh, in at least in modern U.S. secretaries of state is Jim Baker. So they've long had a sort of frenemy relationship, if you will. And I think that, you know, Kissinger is a very different kind of international relations practitioner. Uh, Jim Baker wasn't going to talk to you about the Treaty of Westphalia and Metternich. You know, uh, he's not dreaming up yeah. uh, 
moves on a chessboard like the reopening to China for which Nixon and Kissinger are justifiably famous. Uh, but at the same time, Baker did something uh, very consequential, arguably more consequential than Kissinger did because the times were different. And, you know, if you look at the reunification of Germany and, you know, what happened from this incredible moment of the fall of the Berlin Wall in November of 1989 and the amount of diplomacy that it took, the sheer knocking of heads, the British were against it, the French were against it, many people in back in Washington, uh, hardliners were against it. Then, of course, the Soviets were under enormous pressure from their hardliners. For Baker to really lead that effort was the pinnacle of his diplomacy. And, you know, in hindsight, that unification feels a lot more inevitable uh, than it probably was at the time. My guests are Susan Glasser from The New Yorker and Peter Baker. He's no relation to the subject. He's from The New York Times. And they're the co-authors of The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James A. Baker III, which has attracted rave reviews in The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post and The Economist. By the way, as an aside, I love this James Baker mantra, quote, Prior preparation prevents <laughs> piss-poor performance. <laughs> now, that's something that Australian high school students realise as they sit for their high school certificate examinations. Now, you heard me earlier quote the former CIA director and the Defence Secretary, Robert Gates. He believes the greatest national security threat to the US was this toxic polarisation, hyper-partisanship in Washington. He made those remarks in 2013, 2014, around the time you both started working on this Baker project. Why do you think compromise in Washington has become such a dirty word during this period? Because Gates made those remarks before Donald Trump came on the scene. Susan. Well, you know, that's right. Of course, Donald Trump is not the beginning and end of uh, America's troubles these days. And, you know, I think this extreme polarization really long has been years in the making. In fact, you know, 1976, the first presidential campaign that Jim Baker was involved with, something like 24 out of the 50 American states were genuinely toss-ups at the end of the election. You know, go forward to, say, 2014, around the time Bob Gates made that statement, there were 10 states at best. You know, so basically the competitive landscape of American politics had been transformed. We'd sorted ourselves geographically into two Americas, uh, hardly even on speaking terms with each other. And of course, with the fragmenting of the media, you know, you really had a, a dialogue that was no longer with an agreed upon set of the facts, with an agreed upon, you know, desire to get to doing something. Uh, you know, it's much easier to campaign constantly than it is to make the hard choices that governing requires. And increasingly, you see American politicians right now, we have not had a coronavirus relief package passed by the Congress of the U.S. and signed by the president in months since mm. April. Jim Baker never would have let that happen. I'm quite sure of it. Yes, I know. But Peter, bearing all, all that in mind, given everything that Susan's just said, could Baker, now 90, but could he have succeeded in this polarizing and poisonous environment? Yeah, it's a great question. Look, he is he is so canny and so naturally talented that he probably would figure out a way to make something even of this moment. But you're right, I think, that he was most successful because it was a marriage of man and moment, because the opportunities that were available to him at the time he was at the height of power were the kind of opportunities that he could take advantage of. And I think that this moment, as Susan said, is so structurally different that future Jim Bakers, would-be Jim Bakers, find themselves frustrated and either can't get something done or don't even 
you know, want to try anymore, you know, basically bail out of politics because they see it as a hopeless cause. It is a shame. Bob Gates would have been one of those people. Bob Gates, who worked for both a Democratic president and a Republican president, is one of those who could have crossed those lines. But even he, as you point out correctly, has sort of washed his hands of it and said it's not a, uh, a workable system anymore. Yeah, yeah, but you quote Baker as saying that Trump is crazy and nuts, yet he votes for Trump. He voted for him in 2016. He's going to vote for him in, in a few weeks' time. Trump's a disruptor of the establishment that Baker was once a pillar of. Susan, why? <laughs> you know, it's a good question. Uh, that's... Uh... <laughs> I, I think this was a, a running conversation we had for years. And I think, you know, in many ways, it it helps to understand the hostile takeover of the Republican Party by Donald Trump. Uh, you know, and why is it that even after everything that's gone on, you're still looking at a situation where 40, 41 percent, even 45 percent of the American public are going to support Donald Trump, uh, even while people like Jim Baker, who told us that he thought Trump was nuts, that he was crazy. Those are quotes that he used. And yet at the same time could not renounce fully. He said, I'm still a Republican, even if my party has left me. Yes. Well, Trump has implied he may not agree to a peaceful transfer of power if he loses on November 3. Now, when Baker's boss, President Bush Sr., lost to Bill Clinton, this is what Bush told supporters. Thank you very much. Look, here's the way... We see it, and the country should see it, that the people have spoken, and we respect the majesty of the democratic system. I just called Governor Clinton over in Little Rock and offered my congratulations. He did run a strong campaign. I wish him well in the White House, and uh, I want the country to know that our entire administration will work closely with his team to ensure the smooth transition of power. There is important work to be done, and America must always come first. So we will get behind this new president and wish him, wish him well. That's President Bush with his wife, Barbara, and his best friend, James Baker, by his side, conceding defeat to Bill Clinton in 1992. Uh, Susan, Peter, uh, have a choice here. Uh, what would Baker make of Trump and his carry-on over a peaceful transfer of power if he loses on November 3? You know, absolutely against it. Uh, this is not the world of George Herbert Walker Bush and James Addison Baker III. You know, they were patriots first and partisans second. And that's what's so perplexing about, you know, the evolution of the Republican Party today to, you know, a lot of people, including arguably Jim Baker, being forced to accept or accepting or willing themselves to accept things that they themselves uh, would find unacceptable. It's really a remarkable moment here in Washington. Uh, we're having conversations like we never could have imagined. Yeah. Well, on that note, Peter, are there any political adults in Washington? And I'm serious when I ask that question. Well, there are, but they are not the ones who are at the wheel right now. They're not the ones who are steering the ship. Uh, they're the ones who are either getting ready to retire or move on or possibly voted out of office to the extent that they are still competing. Or they're waiting for the moment to change. They're waiting for the tides of history to kind of, you know, to shift back toward a more constructive moment. But the problem is that the current dynamics so pull away from the kind of bipartisanship, the civility, the, the sense of, of shared purpose that is evident in the clip you just played of George H.W. Bush, that it's, it's hard to see how they come back to the fore at the moment. 
Yeah, well, Baker has been called the most important unelected U.S. official since World War II. Former Obama Senior Advisor Ambassador Samantha Powers, writing in the New York Times, says about your book, quote, Now, especially when incompetence and ideology have cost the lives of more than 200,000 Americans in the COVID pandemic, and when faith in American leadership in the world has plummeted, it's hard to dismiss the author's nostalgia for what Baker was able to achieve by moving the machinery of American politics. The book is called The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James A. Baker III. Susan, Peter, it's absolutely been wonderful having you on ABC's Radio National. Oh, thanks so much, Tom. Great to be with you. Thank you, Tom. And we, we were visiting uh, Australia about a year and a half ago or so. We can't wait to come back as soon as COVID lets us. You're always welcome. Peter Baker is with The New York Times and Susan Glasser is with The New Yorker. Well, that's it for this week. And remember, if you'd like to download past episodes of the program, just go to abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. Or, of course, you can always download the podcast via the ABC Listen app. I'm Tom Switzer from ABC's Radio National, and I hope you can tune in to Between the Lines next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.